Blog Talk Radio. welcome you to the Stop Child Abuse Now show, sponsored by NASCA, which stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. My name is Penelope Bennis. I am from Sarasota, Florida. I am also an adult survivor of child abuse, and I wish to welcome you to our show tonight. This is scan number 3,379. It is Thursday, February 15th, 2024. The type of show we're going to have tonight is a uh, open panel uh, call and discussion with our survivor professional, the uh, esteemed Dr. Jaime Romo. And uh, as you know, Dr. Romo um, comes on our shows um, regularly and um, is an invaluable resource to NASCA. And I'll tell you a little bit more about Dr. Romo in a few minutes, but I want to talk a little bit more about NASCA and its mission because, as you know, NASCA is focused on child abuse trauma prevention, intervention, recovery, and I will share with you our mission statement. We have a single purpose at NASCA. It's to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas and neglect, and we do so with only two goals. The first educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, abbreviated CSA, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic, worldwide problem that affects everyone. The second goal, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. So we invite you to call into our show this evening and become a member of our panel. Very simple, no experience necessary. And all you have to do is dial the following number. It's area code 646-595-2118. And I'll greet you on our back line and bring you into the show, the live show. So again, the phone number is area code 646-595-2118. So I'd like to tell you a little bit more about our show this evening. Um, as I mentioned, it's a Q&A call and discussion with our survivor professional, 
We use an open mic forum. And our special host tonight is Dr. Jaime Romo from San Diego. He's an educator, a consultant, an author, and a minister who promotes prevention and healing from child sexual abuse, particularly abuse by religious authorities or in the context of religious settings. A workbook he wrote entitled Healing the Sexually Abused Heart, a workbook for survivors, thrivers, and supporters, is an integration of various disciplines that led Dr. Romo to become a certified traumatic incident reduction, which is abbreviated TIR facilitator. As Dr. Romo explains, while it is no secret that I am a survivor of clergy abuse, it is the journey of integration, transformation, and application that is most telling about my accomplishments and the life that I celebrate. So I invite you to please visit his website at www.jaimeromo.org, and I'll spell it out, which is www.jaimeromo.org. So as you know, on these episodes, Open Mics, Rubber Professional episodes, we welcome various co-hosts and survivor professionals who will assist in fielding questions and lead a variety of topics suggested by our call-in participants. So their trauma-informed perspectives as survivor professionals will help them guide discussions on the issues of child abuse trauma and healthy human sexuality that spring from questions and topics brought to us by our listeners. So everyone's invited to engage to engage in tonight's show. For more information on NASCA, please visit www.nasca.org. So I'll repeat the number one more time, and I encourage you to please call in because I know that you're listening. Uh, don't be shy. Um, first-timers are always welcome. Area code 646-595-2118. So without further ado, hi, uh, um, May. I'm going to unmute your mic and a thank you and welcome and thank you again so much. We so appreciate your expertise and having you on our shows here at NASCA. So I'll turn it over to you. Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, good evening or wherever you are, morning. Um, thanks for having okay. me on and thanks for having this space where um, people can share together. I mean, there's a an idea that, you know, two people can brainstorm and, and it can be helpful, but when more join, the resources can magnify. And so I hope us will call in and join um, because we're always in this process of letting go of past hurt and, you know, whatever interpretations that uh, kind of got put into us and that we internalized. And then clearing those and finding out kind of actually what it is that we really are, you know, what we really, really want, and how could we move forward? Yeah. Um, so I look forward to this question, uh, which I think in general um, recovery journey. And I could start with four words and in a kind of a metaphor um, to begin the conversation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes, great. <laughs> well, so, so far, it's just, just the two of us. Yes, exactly. 
Yeah. So um, involved with all kinds of, of learning and human development um, careers, you know, from teaching teachers to um, working, as you mentioned, with TIR, I'm a trainer. And um, TIR, just this is a footnote, is, is not therapy per se. It's under the educational umbrella. And uh, it's what was so effective for me in um, clearing a lot of things that um, led to my own experience with PTSD. Um, and now I'm in the role of a hospice chaplain. And, you know, I just left a, a, a young patient um, who's saying, you know, I'm kind of moving from, from shock to I'm not at all at acceptance, but I'm just kind of letting this sink in. Like, what does this mean? You know, and in the midst of his circumstance, how can he find some sense of meaning and purpose and connection? Um, and there are different kind of models or ways that we can describe the healing journey. Um, the workbook starts with the victim experience and then describes, kind of, okay, now we're, we're not in that same victim experience, but we're, we're still kind of reliving a lot. We're still in the survival mode, seems like. We are living in the here and then, triggered and reactive without even realizing it. And then, you know, I imagine this before jumping into kind of thriver mode, this place of in-between, you know, where we still may go back and forth in the survivor mode and then move in forward a little bit to actually doing something new. Um, and, and Kubler-Ross, you know, has her stages of acceptance. Um, and so there are a lot, of, a lot of different ways that people describe coming to, you know, what, what seems terrible to actually be more fully alive. And so the image of the story I want to share um, is called the parable of the sidewalk in Life in Five Days. Um, I think it's Portia Nelson who is the author. And it starts with the image of a person walking down the sidewalk in a huge hole in the sidewalk. And so day one, person walks down the sidewalk and they fall in and they didn't they didn't see it coming. And you know, it's upsetting and and they don't know how they got there and um it takes a long time to get out. That's day one. Day two, same sidewalk, person knows the hole is there but kinda of pretends it's not and falls in again and blames other people somehow for putting it there and takes a long time to get out. Day three, same person says sidewalk. They know it's there. They try to walk around, but they fall in. But this time, they go quickly because they know it's their fault. Day four, they walk around this hole in the sidewalk. And day five, we walk down a different sidewalk. And so that's the, the metaphor for um, it is a journey, it is a process to go from um, a place of feeling a victim to you know surviving, and and not just staying there. And, you know, I I 
claimed that with like the, the badge of honor somehow for a long time, you know, that I've survived all these things. You know, I could do the pain Olympics. That's, that's mm-hmm. not healing really. That's uh, towards healing. Right? And so um, the, the difficult journey of fully facing what um, has been, has caused injury and that injury may be a particular kind of abuse, a single incident, could be physical, emotional, sexual, uh, spiritual. I mean, it could be over time, you know, just stress, chronic stress. It could be passed down from generations. Um, the idea of PTSD, it, you know, I like to think of it more as, you know, post-traumatic stress injury. And, and then complex PTSD or PTSI is, you know, maybe thinking of it as continuous or collective or chronic. And so all of these descriptors can point to, you know, okay, now we're in this state of injury. Um, and so I'm happy to kind of talk with you and, and anyone who calls in about this process you know, some of the complexities of it and the ways that we attempt, you know, to heal. Um, and okay, well, thank you, Dr. Romo. And um, before we continue, I did want to say, you know, I do check um, after the shows are archived the number of listens and streams, and we still have quite a bit of volume. You know, we're the number one podcast still um, in this um, silo. And so um, I just tell you that because I know people are listening. Um, I know people are tuning in. And um, I just encourage you, um, even if it's your first time, I remember the first time I called, and I didn't want to identify myself or say anything, but I did call the number and I just listened in as a panel member. That is perfectly fine. So don't, you know, don't feel that you, you know, need to take a giant leap, take a baby step. So I'm just going to repeat the number. One more time to call in. It's area code 646-595-2118. And um, it's, um, I'll, we'll do everything we can to make you feel completely comfortable if, if you wish to call in. Um, but, Dr. Romo, if we don't have any additional callers, I do want to let you know that we still, we're still getting the numbers. So um, what you're sharing in the discussion we're having is still serving our, you know, the community and the world um, Within within our reach, so um, you know that I just wanted to pass that along. That that is something mm-hmm. I think you know that we have to be capable of, of um, you know looking at um, our viewership. So, um, but you know, regarding what you just shared, it's interesting because um, in my own you know in my own story, um, you know, you mentioned all these different you know types of maltreatment and abuse, and I would just say that you know I actually unfortunately fall into every single category. I was born into it, multi-generational. Um, it was extreme. And I did not start my healing journey um, until about seven years ago. So, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, and um, when I started, it was, I've always, you know, I was that, well, perfection will be my protection and I was an overachiever and that was where my addiction mm-hmm. was just, overcompensating and so I approached addressing my trauma you know and going to once I hit that wall and finally you know went um, 
and was referred to someone, and I started um, cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, I approached it like I approached my career and everything else in life. I thought, well, the harder I work at this, right, I'm just going to whip through it, and I'm going to be mm-hmm. healed, you know. And um, and I learned that um, um, that's just not the way it worked, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. and it was almost once, and it was a couple years in to, um, you know, going to therapy once or twice a week and just rolling up my sleeves and different modalities and really trying to just embrace it. Um, it was almost, I mean, because you mentioned all these, you know, the sidewalk, and I think it was almost, for me, um, that expectation of just being able to complete the journey and to, to just, you know, um, work into being a thriver um, and hmm. feeling that, I felt like I was setting myself for failure because that doesn't work that way. And once I accepted yeah. that, um, um you know, it was a process that it was yeah. just um, a road and that, um, you know, that there was no end point um, and there was no healed and then you're done. Um, mm-hmm. That almost helped me, propelled me further into the journey and, and helped me. I think it was acceptance of that to realize that this is, there's no end game here. It's more about, um learning how to manage um, and um, and not be managed, really, um, to manage what had been managing me, um, the triggers and everything else, to, to, to sort of, I don't know if it's making sense, to accept that. Um, and that helped me get, um, I, I felt like I kind of passed over the mm. hump, if you will. So um, I just wanted to, to contribute that, at least, you know, um, in addition to what you shared yeah no thank you um yeah but there, we're in this ongoing process i appreciate you know the experience of overcompensating you know overachieving like we can think ourselves through this out of this you know we can achieve ourselves out of you know whatever has been uh, painful and as I think of it now, I mean, those are kinds of the initial primal response of flight, you know, um, mm-hmm. and and that is what we do when we're having a sense of not being safe, um, and the uh, the idea of when we're not safe, we can feel um disconnected from ourselves and i think of um what you described as coming to to accept some of the things that uh, are not all done yet you know that there's a way of then being more embodied as i think of it and um you know because we can dissociate when we're stressed and we can i know you know me through overwork and overachieving and all that stuff there's a there's a disconnect and so um i think healing has to do with wholeness um and being kind of healthier to ourselves um and so this idea of that means accepting our our bodies accepting our emotions accepting our you know our, our mind as they are and 
to me, that's the beginning of actually getting to take control of our mind and be able to observe and work differently. Um, so that if, I mean, the word I wrote down was uh, incarnation, which, you know, sounds, it's a very like kind of theological word, like this somehow the, the spirit took flesh, right? So in us, what is the best part of ourself that may have gotten split that um, in our healing process, we reintegrate, we re-embody. Um, mm-hmm. And so some of that is to accept and to slow down um, where we are, accept where we are as a way then to um, actually experience uh, more freedom. Um, because we can't, uh, that's one thing that I'm so clear about is um, healing comes, you know, when we're, we can fully face something. And and the, even at that point, then there may be a, a process of being able to really, you know, integrate and let go of what's toxic um, and to be able to go forward with that as part of us. Um, but, uh, yeah, wasn't it um, James Bowman said, uh, not everything can be what changed, but nothing can be changed unless it's faced something like that. Mm-hmm. We have to fully face things as, as much as they become available you know, um, in their time. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that was exactly my experience because the more I um, spoke of um, what was really prohibited to ever speak of in our family, I mean, it was, you know, Secrecy was the most prolific enabler of the cycle to continue. Um, we were never allowed to not only speak about what happened, we were no longer, we weren't allowed to have emotions around it. We weren't allowed, you know, we were stifled in every way. <clears throat> and, it, and as these things, um, <clears throat> I was actually able to speak of them for the first time and give myself permission to do that over time um, and actually bring them up and out as painful as it was to acknowledge these things and to talk about them and to actually give myself permission to grieve them, um, mm-hmm. the calmer I felt and the better I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was very slow and incremental. Um, and um, the more I could, I figured myself out. I know you said, you know, we split and then we, you know, we come act together um in a you know incarnation and um it was interesting because i bringing that out i was able to to really have some aha moments about myself and put the puzzle pieces together and really um i felt like i had been i had never grown up in, in a certain sense um and been able to have that self-discovery because as you said i was so busy fleeing and dissociating that um and numbing that um you know, that process really hadn't started to take place until I started um, recovery. And so everything mm-hmm. you said really resonates with me because, um, and that was, I, I, I want to say like in discovery, you know, that discovery period of, of just um, um, bringing everything up and out was, I would say, you know, three or four years at least um, mm-hmm. of what I remember of what I, yeah. what I, of what I can remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
what you I think you used the word um, speaking the unspeakable, something like it, and I think that's yeah. a key, a key powerful um, experience. Um, I, I was at a, a workshop a couple weekends ago uh, about trauma in groups, and you know, psychologists are talking, giving lots of examples of, you know, the trauma that individuals have carried. And, and they gave one where a person had carried this secret whole life and on his deathbed sat up and kind of blurted, announced what, like who he really was, what his real identity was no doubt would have been unacceptable to everyone around. It, it, it was like growing up in Hungary as a German um, in World War II. And, and it was, and, and what I said to the group is like, yeah, speaking the unspeakable, that is uh, how we move forward. You know, and you mentioned things that have been suppressed, you know, what, not what to be felt or um, spoken about. And, um, that you know, that is what what kind of adds up and affects the body and you know mind and spirit. Um, but once I think you mentioned grieving as well. Um, yeah. And I think you know grieving is a natural part of facing what has been lost. You know, facing the injury, and um, and there is a process, but. You know, the process leads to, um, you know, a richness, a kind of, and I, as I think of it, like kind of a superpower, you know, a, a wisdom and compassion that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, there's an image of the griefing process as like a, a, a jar with like a tennis ball in it. And the tennis ball seems to fill up the jar. And then there's another picture of a little bit of a bigger jar and then the same tennis ball in it. And then there's another picture of a bigger jar with a lot more space with the tennis ball in it. And it's the idea that um, we grieve because we love and we may miss, you know, people and, and that connection stays or miss earlier versions of ourselves or experiences or places or things. But, um, but over time, we, our capacity hold that is bigger and in my mind this capacity mm-hmm. uh, for compassion for ourselves understanding what we went through so we can understand hopefully what others go through um, mm-hmm. and and so this speaking the unspeakable is just so important and, and it could be terrifying you know there may be consequences the reason that people stay silent I mean when I uh, so I grew up you know, in a very Catholic community, you know, um, that was my safe place, and, and then that was the place where I was abused by you know, a priest and someone else from the diocese. Um, and and then I suppressed that, and years later, you know, was married in the L.A. Cathedral, like with a huge group of people that were part of a retreat group, this big community that was a really beautiful community, but in it, very disconnected. I had suppressed so much from the past. Um, and so when I did speak up, it was with a rage, 
and and that was uh, that ran the risk and the reality of losing that not just you know speaking up against the individual, but now losing this huge community um, mm-hmm. because it was in, you know, intolerable, um, and so there is a risk in different ways when people speak the unspeakable, and the benefit though is being able to you know, let go of what is not ours and I mean, speak our truth. I mean, there's something about trauma that that distorts truth, that can confuse it or can suppress it. And so when we can speak the unspeakable, it helps us to take that truth back. And, um, and that is, it, you know, at our core. Mm-hmm. And that is, I mean... Exactly. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I'm just say, I'm like nodding my head yes as you are speaking. Um, because you know the truth um, helped me grieve um, and face um, the unspeakable, but it did have significant consequences. Um, and um, I'm the only one that has spoken of the events um, that happened in the family of origin and the consequence um, has been painful to mm. have been um, blacklisted, if you will, um, mm-hmm. relationally. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that I, I'd be asked to be very honest, I've really struggled with. I mean, no doubt in my own recovery, I know how important it is. Um, uh, and I had to, you know, name the things that happened and write write letters and give the truth in a loving way back to those I've been carrying the burdens and the, and the blame for so long. And part of my process was in terms of the speaking the truth was to, to give that back to those mm-hmm. who really should have owned it. Um, Mm-hmm. And um, but um, you know the guilt is something that I I have grappled with um, in terms of not guilt but but I have faced the consequences I wouldn't do it any differently but I I just have to say it's it's been painful um, mm-hmm. but I also know how much I would have wanted not to be alone in the process of recovery mm-hmm. and I wanted to open the door and invite you know, any, uh, anyone else in my family um, that I know have had similar experiences to be, um, to not be alone and to know that, that you know, that, um, that the door was open should they mm-hmm. choose, you know, to, to, you know, to start that process. Um, mm-hmm. but, but just what you said, they're, they're hard to, to lose your community or to, you know, to face that, reality of consequences in a, within a community or family system. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the process for me of healing. You know, it was part of the pain of it. Yeah, it's really hard to um, reconcile. I mean, meaning to hold two things together. Like, you know, there's a connection with this group or this person. Um, it's not all bad. And at the same time, there's some stuff that's really bad 
and that mm-hmm. uh, is painful and you know I may have some rage around it and um, and that's uh, you know what what a an offer you know to be a person to break the silence that others could see themselves in that and and maybe uh, acknowledge their own experience or their own uh, ignorance or their own guiltiness or whatever. I mean, um, the different support groups are, are really helpful in people hearing someone else's story and then that kind of waking up something in, in them or affirming, mm-hmm. you know, that sense of, okay, it wasn't just me. Um, so that's really a, a gift, you know, for you to speak up and whether others acknowledge it and, and speak to it or not, that um, it creates a space, you know, and uh, opens the possibility of others as well getting a little bit more freed up instead of suppressing. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that was a big part of, for me that helped me so much was when I, you know, met, um, when I was introduced to NASCA, just knowing that you're not alone, um, mm-hmm. that we've walked in, you know, our experiences might not be 100% the same, but the feelings generally um, and the experiences are very much aligned. And just just to know that I wasn't alone um, was, I mean, that helped me keep moving forward um, because I did feel um, so alone being the first one and, and mm-hmm the only one it was um, there's just something to be said about having a community of people that um, understand and can support you um, oh yeah you realize yeah, you're not we, yeah we, we heal in uh, healthy relationships we move you know not just from our head to our heart but you know from our own individual experience to connecting with others um, and that's Super important, um, and this idea of feeling alone—that um, you know—I'm a, I'm a chaplain, and I led a presentation with the, the regional chaplains, you know, in here in San Diego, and offered a, a space for people to pair up, and the question was, um, you know, what's been um, what's been unspeakable in your experience, in your role? And what was the worst thing about that? And who have you become as a result? And, mm-hmm. you know, people broke up into pairs. And, you know, I had a chance to be in a pair myself. And um, it was really powerful. You know, for to me to have the experience and to have others have the experience to say, oh, it's not just me. You know, it's not just my local group um, or me and my personality, but there's a system around me that is impacting. You know, that a lot of people are having this shared experience. And so, you know, we experience the, the harm, you know, in systems, and, and we can experience the healing as well through healthy relationships. Mm-hmm which hopefully will impact larger systems, family systems, you know, school systems, uh, teams, uh, organizations, on and on. But, you know, we're in an environment that um, is 
you know, a, a real tumultuous mixed bag of, uh, uh, you know, abusive, you know, fear-based um, shaming and, you know, fleeing from exposing what, what uh, is so unhealthy. And, and then there are others who are moving along in the journey. Yeah. So, yeah, that's so yeah. important. Uh, we heal in the presence of others who are safe and loving. And, you know, and you mentioned, I mean, NASCA is not a religious organization, but I, I am of um, faith, and I'm so mm-hmm. thankful that I've never lost my faith, um, mm. even though, you know, I also experienced sexual abuse in the church. And um, because that, I mean, I that was a big part of it as well. I mean, there was, um, um, in terms of my... Yeah, Sometimes I felt like it was something bigger than myself that was helping me propel forward. I, you know, I mm. just, if I hadn't had that, I don't know, you know, it was just so comforting. And, and I know we're not, you know, like, as I mentioned, you know, this is my own experience. Um, my, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't represent NASCA, but um, it, it definitely um, within that as well, there was just, it was spokes on a wheel, if you will. It was, you know, there mm-hmm. were so many different, um, aspects, and I think um, in in a lot of the testimonies I know that you hear and that I've heard, you know, faith, you know, that does also play, you know, a big role. Um, but just that sense of community um, as well, whether it's a faith based um, community or or not, is you know, um, I it's such a big part. Um, and I, you know, I'm so glad that uh, that these these um, institutions and, and groups exist. Um, mm, yeah, they're out there. Yeah, and um, you know whether someone identifies it as spiritual or you know a, a, a transcendental sense of life or consciousness. You know, the universe is somehow. Um, held together by consciousness. I mean, it's a lot of astrophysicists are coming to. Um, just the idea that there's something that is in us, that connects us, that's bigger than us. And and, and I think as we develop physically and emotionally and, and intellectually, we uh, let go of earlier versions of ourselves. And I think spiritually as well, um, like I would use that language, spiritual, that um, earlier versions of understanding of if you use the term God or higher power, that that can change, right? And so um, as we grow, we, I think, take up our own authority and um, and have a sense of partnership with this higher power, which I would frame as love. Um, And I think of that as, you know the the glue that holds us all together, um, what astrophysicists might call you know consciousness, um, but you know, so you may think of it as you know faith as connection uh, with you know something that helps us um, to continue to grow beyond our you know physical or emotional or intellectual self. Um, and I know I'm 
have a, a bias, you know, as I'm dealing with people at the end of life, and, and many of them are not religious, or some come from various traditions, and they've started with a tradition and then have become disillusioned, um, have experienced, you know, some levels of betrayal or spiritual abuse, um, and still have this deep sense, profound sense of being in the hands of a creator or mm-hmm. a higher power. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think it is uh, so messed up that there is uh, religious malpractice, that there is spiritual abuse, and and even with that, um, I know my own experience and many who, who, who are alive, you know, fully more fully alive with a deep sense of spiritual connection that goes way beyond um, those earlier versions of, you know, religious practices or malpractices. But all that is, is along the lines of being, becoming more whole, having a deeper understanding of who we are and, Relationship to others as well in relationship to this earth, you know, being being in relationship, healthy, hopefully safe relationships. Well, yes, and um, and I, I just I wanted to add to that as well. You know, part of you know part of my um, strong faith, I, my faith strengthened through recovery. And part of it was when I mean, we talked about, you know, speaking the unspeakable and bringing um, the truth out, um, some of the repressed, repressed memories, but I also was repressed things that I remember that I just never spoken of. Um, mm-hmm. But what I realized was as I could finally speak of all these things from my earliest memory through my life, um, horrific physical abuse, I realized mm-hmm. I one day counted, I had this moment of clarity, five times I should have died, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, I just, I ended up writing them all down, and I, um, I mean, not could have died, but should have died, mm-hmm. not once, not twice, not three times, five times, and I just thought, you know, um, there's a reason that I survived. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I can't um, ignore this either. So it actually, you know, strengthened my faith um, mm-hmm. in a sense. But that was, you know, a long process of being able to um, come back, you know, fully integrate um, and, um, you know, um, push forward all that, uh, all those repressed memories and speak of them and truthfully and acknowledge mm-hmm. them for what they were and bring them to life. So um, I just wanted to share that with you. Um, yeah, um, can, uh, I don't know if I missed it. So did, did that happen, that awareness about those times that you should decide but didn't, did that come as kind of in the process of facing other views and healing journey. Yes, yes, it was it was a part of um, speaking of of what had happened and acknowledging it. Yeah, and uh, 
bringing it up and out. Well, so um, the reason I uh, ask about that is um, there's this, I think, a really useful image. I haven't seen it, uh, but I know that there are signs near uh, train crossings um, that say, you know, warning, one train may hide another train, something like that. And, you know, that's hmm. a real, like, practical thing. Like, we may think that the, the danger is what we see right in front of us. But in the world of trauma, you know, there's often something behind that thing that presents itself as the problem. Um, and to bring that up, because I think of the flip side, you know, once we we start recognizing something, like even, this is amazing, you know, I could have died. Once we start, like, unpacking, unblocking, you know, uh, these different life experiences, we can find that there's some amazing things that we haven't thought of as well, you know, and so mm-hmm. that we may, uh, so there's always something behind, I mean, against this short version of all this. I often think of it in terms of the trauma network and, and how, you know, once we deal with some of the current things, we can move back. And once we really deal with um, some of those root incidences, the early formative ones, then if we can clear those, then a lot of other things change. I mean, that's what I've seen through the traumatic incident reduction. It's very amazing. But it, it, I think it, reverse, it works in the reverse as well, that um, once we fully face good things, then we can see other things that are similar or earlier, and, and we become, you know, more connected, more whole, because those experiences are part of us, too. And, and the payoff is, on one hand, being lighter because we're letting go of some of those things that were hidden and then richer because now we have access to this other set of experiences that maybe got blocked as well. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm just, it, it makes perfect sense, so I'm glad. Yeah, it's a very um, interesting phenomena for sure. And that's the beauty. I mean, for me, that's what I found really was the beauty of healing is, is um, the additive effect, as you mentioned, of um, um, bringing these things out and just becoming um, becoming whole in a different way. And, I mean, not only developing compassion for others, but being able to develop compassion for, my, for the self, which I mm-hmm. think is, you know, that self-hatred, I mean, that was, that burned within me for so long because, as you know, as children, um, you know, we do all sorts of different things to survive when we're living in the environment, and one of it is to um, put the blame on oneself so, you know, we can tolerate um, the guardians and the caregivers that we have. We have to make it work. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that that was a part of it for me as well. And yeah, I've heard a lot of, you know. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, 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 that was it. That was it. Well, I just wanted to I mean, like, affirm that that, that is uh, such a normal developmental um, outcome, you know, where kids are dependent on the adults or the authorities and those who, with that, then there may be some, um, you know, either betrayal or abuse or, you know, not getting enough of what we need. And so this is like 
crazy bind of needing to still rely on those and believe that they are right in some way, um, and then the experience of not getting what we want or getting some kind of abuse or harm. And so it makes sense that kids internalize that. Is it, you know, uh, if there's a punishment, it means I've done something bad. If this keeps happening, I'm not getting what I need. It must be my fault. I must be bad. And uh, so that that's so widespread, so common that affects then how we um, cope and um, navigate that. I'm going to say something that may sound like like a real stretch, but in my mind, it's uh, it's very common. Uh, you know, I work with people at the end of life, and there are times where um, people come to a point where they're really happy, they're really at peace, and mm-hmm. you know, in some cases, not many, but in some cases, I've had the experience of people saying, um, "Dying is fun," and what that has meant is that they have done the grieving part of what was, you know, and they've accepted kind of what is. And they have had these experiences of, okay, so it's kind of a death to my past. You know, I still care about that and people and all those things. And so now I'm able to really be present. And uh, I like that to um, just this, this whole healing process, you know, that we, we can mourn our past and at some point we need to like have compassion for ourselves or whatever happened and have now an understanding that we didn't have then and, and uh, let kind of let go of the toxic side uh, that, of what was and, and then be present. Um, and so there's like these mini cycles of of kind of letting go, uh, call it grieving, or and, and then being present and having a new day. You know, every day showing up different, becoming, you know, ongoing self development or actualization or call it transcendence. Um, I'll stop there. Wow. That is, I mean, I've, as you're explaining that, um, I mean, I've never heard the phrase dying is fun or something that, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, well. But, yeah, but um, I'm thinking about, you know, when my, when my father passed away, um, he was diagnosed um, with pancreatic cancer um, and he was, it was very ra- uh, rapid and he, um, was at end stage, um, and um, when he was diagnosed, it was very shocking. And he lived two weeks before mm. he died, and so he was just at palliative care, and mm-hmm. he wanted to stay at home, so he was able to stay at home. And um, he was able to say goodbye, you know, to his family. I mean, we all live mm. in different parts of the country. He has three kids, so we all flew in, and, you know, family, other family members flew in and friends came by and um, my father said at one um, at one point, well, I'm the only happy person in the house, you know, because we were all grieving mm. his impending because we, you know, we were given a, a timeline for him 
And um, so when you said that, I just connected it. Um, and I thought, you know, I think that transformation for him of just getting that news and accepting the past and, and kind of getting, mm-hmm. you know, going over that threshold, um, I thought, you know, because he always said um, he'd had a sister who had died of ovarian cancer, and it was a very, you know, she went through therapy um, for some years, and it was excruciating, and he mm. had never wanted to be subjected to, to that, um, um, you know, possibly that he would have to have choices to extend his life. So he, you know, yeah. initially we thought he was just so happy because he was, actually at palliative care and was comfortable but I think now that you said that I never actually had that perspective so I want to say thank you because mm. it makes the you know it makes more sense you know I didn't really think of it that way yeah I mean again my my lens is, is very um I don't know if it's specialized very particular that um you know People are, are facing end of life, and that's what clarifies what's most important, you know, and they let go of what uh, is not urgent and, and necessary. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a liberating process. And, if, you know, liberation, um, I was talking with a patient today, and he was talking about that freedom, you know, um, and that's in us, right? People want freedom. People um I'm leading a workshop in two weekends for uh, educators, and it's on liberatory leadership. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? But we're figuring that out, what it means. But I think it is with that idea of um, we want to be more whole. We want our systems, uh, in this case, educational systems, to be more whole, to be more, you know, human uh, and supportive of, you know, this growth of all these young people. Um, so this recovery, I, I, I think I got that whole story because this idea of recovery can be fun and kind of a, um, sounds like an oxymoron, but um, that's more of where I am, you know, not like feeling horrible every time, of, you know, getting a conflict that I didn't want to have or repeat a, a pattern that I, you know, thought I was done with, um, you know, but seeing that it's like, oh, okay, now I get it, you know, or I'm closer to getting it. Um, and as a result, I'm able to work differently. Um, so yeah, I think recovery can be fun. It definitely can be liberating. And like in the, in the support groups, 12 step groups or whatever, NASCA, there's the sense of, yeah, we, we can, see more of ourselves and have a bigger perspective and, you know, that's freeing. Well, you know, you're, and you mentioned it when we were talking about emotions here, because we talked about, you know, um, consequences and pain and then um, having fun, um, you know, and, and some level of enjoyment. And, and, and as we're talking about this, I'm thinking, you know, one of the things that actually I didn't realize until I, you know, started the process of recovery was I was so numb. I never had any emotions. I never mm. cried. I never grieved. Um, you know, we it was kind of beaten into us, no pun intended, that we had to stifle 
ourselves in every respect. And of course, so, you know, dissociating was my drug of choice. You know, it was just my, my way I operated. Um, and, uh, but also that, you know, I didn't feel any, so starting the healing process, um, I was able to feel um, emotions and actually I was actually yeah. interesting able to feel pain for the first time and some mm-hmm. of the physical pain that I, I numbed myself to actually, mm-hmm. I, I did have some experiences of feeling um, physical pain, but I definitely felt the emotion. Um, and that, even if it was um, grieving and crying for the first time um, over um, something that I remembered, I did feel there was also a feeling of almost elation or contentment mm. or peace afterwards, but I'd never felt any of those emotions. I was just flat. Mm. So, yeah. Um, yeah. That is a consequence of either shutting down or like having like a wild range of kind of out of control emotions. Um, but the shutting down, I appreciate it. I mean, I think that's, it was a coping response that, that I had, you know, needing to pay attention to everything and disconnect from my own, you know, sense of like fear to be able to you know, intervene uh, in my case with family members who were threatened by an alcoholic, violent dad. And um, so it conditioned me, I think, to, uh, to really lock down my feelings. And mm-hmm. at one point years ago, someone sent me a card, you know, um, and on the outside it, it had a, a hand drawing and, and it said, um, hope you're feeling dot, dot, dot. And you open the card thinking it's going to say something better or whatever, and there's nothing. So it's just that was the point. Hope you're feeling. Um, and mm-hmm. when you described, um, you know, how important that is, I think of the analogy of, you know, if somebody's got an injury, a cut, you know, a deep cut on, on their arm, um, is bleeding, might put a tourniquet on it. And so that's good in the short term. And if you leave it on for a long time, you'll go numb. And if you take it, off then with the blood rushing back of course it would be painful um, but that's part of the blood circulating and you know, working towards healing again and just I think it's a good analogy for emotions as well I mean we have physical injury we have emotional injury we have spiritual injury um, we can kind of numb it and, and even the spiritual discussions people talk about a spiritual bypass you know, like, I'm not going to acknowledge this deep sense of whatever loss or rage I have because my sense of the world or higher power of God has failed me. Um, and so I'm just going to put on a happy face. And that's like the tourniquet, you know, keeping things down. So, yeah, thank you for, you know, highlighting you know, that this is, it's counterintuitive, you know, but. Speak the unspeakable to allow ourselves or find ways that, again, we're feeling, even if at first it, it's uncomfortable, uh, is really a sign of healing. Well, exactly. You know, I used to tell, I, I probably had to tell myself, you know, every time you feel uncomfortable when you're taking a step or doing something, that's good because you're entering 
if you're entering an area of discomfort, that means you're going into somewhere where you've never been before, and that's mm. a sign of progressing in your recovery, of, of mm-hmm. you know, walking down the path. And I had to remind myself, I mean, I, that's a, a mantra that I use. I still use it. You know, if it's uncomfortable, um, you're growing. If it's uncomfortable, mm. you're you know, you're moving forward and it's not necessarily a bad thing to be uncomfortable. Um, and you have to just learn how to get a little bit comfortable in discomfort um, when it's constructive, not destructive, but constructive, you know, for destructive, a constructive reason. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, that definitely. Um well, I think of but, two, you know, I guess uh, go ahead. Go on. Sorry. Oh, well, I, I just think of two images. One is this, you know, cartoon with two people sitting at a table, and one bubble ahead uh, uh, above one person says comfort, and the other bubble says growth. And the caption: one person, the growth person, is saying, "I don't think this is going to work out." that there's going to be some discomfort um, Mm -hmm. in the growing process. Mm -hmm. And and um, there's this map um, or or a model, I guess, that I like a lot. If you think about like quadrants, on on one left-hand side is what's familiar and the other side is unfamiliar and the bottom would be easy and the top would be difficult. Especially when we're feeling unsafe um, it's, it's comfortable it's it's helpful actually to stay in familiar and easy you know it's reliable we don't have to react you know it's, it's a safe thing but as we grow um, maybe we move into the unfamiliar but easy space you know and it's not a lot of risk and it's a little bit different but we can figure it out and that is better than just you can get locked in this familiar and, and easy and, and it can be a kind of a prison. Um, the hardest place to be is, and I remember when all this stuff kind of blew up for me with the Boston clergy abuse scandal and that triggered my own memories. I was thrown into that unfamiliar and difficult place, which is super anxiety producing. Uh, we don't have whatever tools I had to navigate. Didn't fit. You know, it's an emotional overload um, and speaking unspeakable and, and all the reactions, you know, that came with that. Um, and and this is like the the biggest, I guess, example of, you know, the growth through what may be uncomfortable. And if we can, if we can handle and stay with that, place of anxiety and uncertainty. I think of it as, um, you know, deep water. If we can stay with it, you know, at some point, um, one, we get stronger, even if we get tired for a bit, but also we, we can latch on to other resources, other support. Um, and then that, from there, we can deal with other things that are difficult. Um, we have that muscle memory or just that experience. But, yeah, growth and comfort are an opposite sides of the, the spectrum. 
I always have an analogy of the quadrant, and I like the visual. You're very good at giving visuals, by the way. Um, very good. But I like that visual, and I, I can relate. I definitely relate to that. And I'm sure that those who are listening in and streaming but not calling in, which is perfectly fine, um, are going to be able to, you know, relate to that as well. Because I think it seems sometimes that, you know, it's a simple concept in, in a way, Um but it's impactful and it's important to remember. Um, and I think that we need these little reminders as we keep, you know, taking steps um, in recovery um, or, you know, we're facing situations that, you know, that, that may be unfamiliar or may be familiar that we have to, you know, navigate through um, because we know we'll be triggered. It's just important to remember these things. Um, at least for me, it helps keep me going. Um, and not even if there's some days that I just, you know, it's the babiest of baby steps, you know, um, Mm -hmm. that's okay. Um, I just want to keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And somehow this now reminds me of this idea of, um, revisiting as part of the healing process, revisiting the, the place or the people that were, abusive where mm-hmm. the harm was done because um, mm-hmm. you know I, I think the healing process is um, you know we heal when, when we're in the presence of loving and safe people you know if we've been in the presence of abusive and unsafe people uh, or situations and so you know my thought is that um, I did too much too soon you know to confront the the places and the people uh, where the abuse happened and um, you know that was in some ways cathartic and at the same time it was very painful for me and, and uh, everyone else because I, I think I overdid it but it was um, you know I, I was doing my best to face you know what I hadn't been able to face before um, to speak to what was unspeakable before. Um, so, you know, in retrospect, I think there are um, kind of more supportive ways or, you know, ways that wouldn't have caused me as much uh, additional trauma um, had I gone with others, you know, or had I um, mm-hmm. done some, you know, processing in different ways before, you know, was it even necessary to go back to those places? So in, in my case, mm-hmm. you know, it was, uh, so I was, you know, enraged every time I would, you know, grow up Catholic and abuses in the Catholic setting, um, you know, interact with people who were like real uh, cheerleaders for Catholicism or going to a church or, you know, interacting with, you know, priests or hierarchy. Um, and And so there was, Maybe you know some some usefulness in in that, but um, I think you know everybody has to figure out like when it's um, that, that they don't go alone for one, and that they, they explore different ways of recalling and reconciling experiences and and you know finding a way to, to speak to it and express it in different ways. Um, there's something powerful about, you know, facing, confronting, um, you know, the, the abusers, 
Um, but I would, you know, just caution that it uh, come after having done some preparation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like if we're gonna if we're gonna sprint or engage in some like real physical activity, we should probably stretch so a bit before. <laughs> should probably like right work right. up you know, some strength for it. Yeah. That's you know, that's great advice. That's great advice. And thank you for you know sharing your own story, um, and that there's two sides of it as well, right? Because um, it can be cathartic and it can be mm-hmm. um, a positive, and it can be also negative. And mm-hmm. there's part of me that feels that this is the first time that I've been able to bring myself to go back um, to that venue. Um, mm. Speaking of my own experience now, and I didn't feel ready before, and so part I, I've learned to trust myself, and I, mm. you know, I know it's it, with inner child work. You know, I've become a very protective parent of myself. I've had to reparent myself, and I've got my own back, and mm. I haven't felt ready until now. Um, so um, I think that just inherent trust in oneself comes with the work, right? Um, yeah. Learning about, you know, yourself and becoming whole. Um, but to your point, you know, I've, I've, I'm making it time-bound. Um, I have boundaries. I'm bringing someone. I have an escape route. I think, thank you. I think I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And if not, you'll hear about it in a month. Okay. Um, but I, that's a, you know, good good um, good advice. Um, so, um, there's I mentioned this workshop I went to trauma and groups. The uh, presenters mentioned some research, and I'm thinking about what you said. You know, parenting myself, reparenting myself. Um, they gave a couple of examples of parents re. Really, make a huge difference if, if they protect kids, you know, and shield them in some ways. And so one example was that um, this was in London, you know, with a bombing in London during World War II, that um, mothers who provided a, a kind of a protective shield in some way, you know, physically or, you know, they're present and emotionally, that those kids basically did better, you know, less trauma. Um, similarly, after 9/11, you know, they were interviewing, you know, families, you know, afterwards, and they would ask, and the researchers would ask them, the parents, you know, how their kids are doing. And when the parents like were so caught up in their own, you know, trauma that they they didn't really know, um, mm-hmm. that was indicative that the kids themselves were also more impacted, right? They didn't have a protective shield um, emotional for them. And so this idea of um, parenting ourselves, I mean, that's a really significant um, thing to uh, to heal past stuff as well as to go forward, you know, that we, we make sure that um, we're here for ourselves. And, and that allows us then to, to face things much, much differently, you know, and deal with something as difficult that doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, like, traumatic like it was. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you for that. 
Oh, well, that's an interesting too to hear that analogy of, of children, you know, during the war that were shielded or after 9-11, I, you know, um, because I think that was a significant trauma. That's a significant trauma for, at least for me, and I've heard in a lot of other, you know, testimonies and stories when, you know, you um, are completely isolated and feel alone um, um, in a house of, um, of abuse. Um, that isolation and that uh, that abandonment um, mm-hmm. is so profound, um, and uh, um, and so being able to um, provide parenting, even if you have to provide your own, and in terms of that inner child, is um, for me that was I, you know the physical abuse and sexual abuse, and I do not want to downplay it, um, but it was the emotion. I felt it was the emotional abuse that was. Um, the abandonment, the emo- and, and mm-hmm. being alone, but it was more of the emotional, the non-physical abuse that was the most penetrating and, and enduring. Um, and mm. I hate it when I hear people say, "Oh, well, I was never, you know, physically abused, or so I was just um, mm-hmm. verbally abused or emotionally abused." I think, "Oh, I, you know, I want to. I wish I could, you know, I am emphatic in my belief that." Um, it should not be minimized. It is, is as significant. Um, and I think, you know, mm-hmm. it goes back to your comments about that protective parent and the you know, the outcomes for children. Um, I think, yeah, you know, every in my person own. is different. Yeah. In, in that, you know, two people may have similar experience and one is devastated and the other one not. You know, so some of that is, you know, we have uh, pre-existing conditions. You know, some people have already a kind of a vulnerability here that doesn't allow them to kind of just bounce back. And so when someone, yeah, someone may experience um, physical abuse and not carry it as with as much injury as someone who experiences emotional abuse. Um, this idea of, you know, when we reparent, when we can in some ways have compassion for ourselves, you know, in the earlier versions of ourselves that couldn't defend or, you know, couldn't make sense or, you know, as a result took on so much, you know, self, you know, deprecation or even hatred. Um, When we do that healing work, it impacts us going forward. And there was an expression that someone used recently about, um, about not facing you know, past abuse. Um, they said, you know, you, you're gonna, you can think of it as betraying your past or betraying your future. You know, mm. We need to honor our experience, honor our, uh, the things we didn't necessarily create, you know, ask for where we were born or, you know, a lot of things that happened to us. Um, it's part of our experience and we can uh, metabolize and learn and grow from the experiences now in a way that we couldn't then. And so um, we want to honor that, you know, and to, to not is a kind of a betrayal, but it also leaves this unfinished stuff that impacts us going forward. And so we don't want to betray ourselves. So uh, I think it's so important just that, way of describing, you know, reparenting, 
um, you know, seeing the child's you know, the earlier version that uh, didn't have a protective shield. It was really significant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a good tool. It's a good practice. I like that betraying our past or betraying our future. Mm-hmm. Because I felt like I couldn't, you know, I, the first time I told my story and I, you know, on NASC and I really just, you know, I really just was able to fully, you know, embrace the truth um, without reservation. I still thought, what am I doing? You know, I had only told my mm-hmm. therapist and my husband, you know, um, my, my, entire story and, and I went decided there was something that propelled me to go on NASCA and um, you know and give my testimony in full and I thought oh my gosh I'm going to toast the world I'm not going to even be able to show my face the next day I'm not going to be able to leave my house mm-hmm. and what was interesting was the next morning I woke up and I felt like for the first time in my life I could actually show my face and show up mm-hmm as myself. And so I think mm-hmm. that when you said, you know, um, betrayal of the past, betrayal of the, you know, your future, I, I think, you know, that is an interesting, um, I think there's a parallel there because when you shed your shame and you speak, you know, you speak the truth and you, um, you are being honorable. Um, yeah. You're honoring yourself and you're honoring your experience and um, it's the opposite of betrayal. Mm-hmm. But that you know that that um, I think that they're very parallel. That what you just mentioned about betraying your future, um, mm-hmm. and by not by by you know um, not being honest with yourself or being allowing yourself to to be that um, transparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think of it as you know being our authentic self, right? And yeah. in Spanish, um, you know, the word sincere uh, is uh, sincera, right? and that came from the old idea or practice of, you know, people would sell pots, and um, if a pot was old, had a little crack in it or something, it would, like, seal it with wax. And, and so it wasn't a strong, it wasn't, you know, perfect, it probably maybe shouldn't have been sold, but it was covered up, right? and so the idea is like, mm-hmm. sincere, sincere, without wax, um, means, mm. yeah, you're transparent, you know, covering something up, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, authenticity is, you know, that's not an easy thing, you know, to be present, uh, and, Open, uh, you know, have, yeah, that's that's a, a huge, a huge, uh, I guess, a, a skill or, you know, level of, of, you know, showing up. Yeah. But boy, did it feel burdensome to carry it all, too, you know, carrying a mm. huge weight. I didn't even realize it, you know, so... I mean, you're right. It it it's frightening and it was scary, um, and there's exposure there, um, and there's a you know, it's it's it 
mean, it does bear a lot um, to be able to bring oneself to do it. But I said to mention, I mean, I, I didn't realize the weight I was carrying with all the secrets and everything inside until, I mean, I literally mm-hmm. collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to make that mention. It's just, um, you know, hopefully, you know, not everybody hits the wall, but I know some of us do, and I certainly did, and I, I truly believe it. As hard as, you know, as hard as the work is, as you just mentioned, it's also really difficult to carry it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think some of the challenges are, I don't know if they're pitfalls, but, you know, when someone then does kind of begin to speak to, to stuff that's really been suppressed, one, it can in the moment be really freeing, and then it can be like this emotional hangover, you know, or just like this feeling so wiped out. Um, and and another type of experience could be when it's it's um there's some rage. I know for me there was rage and speaking up, and it was a fallacy. And I, I know it's not uncommon for survivors of um, abuse when they speak up um, that we speak up to make sure that it, you know, it doesn't continue we want to protect others in some way and, and there can be this mis idea that um, if I if I stop with my rage you know, that means that I don't care anymore um, and somehow mm-hmm. I'm betraying you know the people that I want to protect or this whole healing you know movement and that can be a pitfall as well, you know, because I think um, there's there can be an adrenaline rush, and people can get kind of call it addicted or hooked into the the anger hormones, you know, adrenaline and cortisol and all that. Um, so it's the formula for me that has been helpful, you know, realizing that I was abandoned, abused, and then wrapped in shame. And it was that I realized I did that to myself, you know, going forward, uh, kind of abandoned myself, as you mentioned, in overachievement and um, mm-hmm. kind of abusive in the way that, you know, that took precedent over other kinds of basic good self-care. Um, and then I was still wrapped in shame. didn't matter, you know, the achievements and so on. Um, mm-hmm. And then I realized, of course, that I had abandoned others in different ways and been abusive to others in different ways. And no doubt they kind of felt less than or took on some shame. And so all that's to say that for me, um, the remedy is like being present to us, to me, right? you know, yeah. present to ourselves, you know, pay attention to our physical health, pay attention to what we need and how we feel and um, and then be good to ourselves. Yeah, just to acknowledge, and that's maybe that reparenting, you know, to be present in a way that we didn't get, be good to ourselves, and um, and then um, be proud of ourselves, you know, acknowledge, and not in a like overinflated way, but you know, but just you know, acknowledging, yeah, we have we have grown, and um, and I think because of that, I think of that Marianne Williamson poem. Um, our deepest fear, you know, says like essentially, you know, we don't serve anyone by playing small, right? by by mm. um, our own light and, and invites others to be free. So, 
you know, the purpose of all this growth, in my mind, is to help others to be free. So mm-hmm. it's a kind of proud of ourselves, but in a way that is not just for us to, as, as you said early on, you know, you're inviting others to also speak, you know, to recognize, you know, to move out of what has been unspeakable or has been a burden, you know, whether we realize it or not. Um, yeah. And by our example, well, I mean, you know, that's inspiring, that's liberating. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say it's very evident that you you did um, take that anger and and funnel it for good and funnel it for you know action and funnel it in the right way um, because look at where you are today and where we are right now. Um, mm-hmm. I mean that's a success story. You know that it's very hopeful. You know that uh, that it's possible. You know it's possible to take a horrific experience and unspeakable unspeakable mm. um, traumatic experiences and to um, transform and to um, and to be a service to others in the way that you are and that is as you know with NASCAR we're about hope and healing um, mm-hmm. and uh, I really I thank you Dr. Romer, Romo, Jaime. I know, I'm not saying it right, am I? Jaime. Jaime, I know it's said very yeah. Okay, okay, good. Um, I thank you so much because um, your your expertise and and um, and your examples and discussion that we've had, I mean, I have found it tremendously helpful, and I know that those listening and those that will listen to the archive, I know that there is going to be a lot of um, our um, membership out there, our NASCA family that is going to benefit as well. So um, on behalf of NASCA, on the very bottom of my heart, I just wish to thank you tonight. We're, we're running out of time. The time goes by so fast. Um, I really do thank you. Um, thank you so very much. I really enjoyed mm. our conversation having you on tonight. Well, thank you. Um, and I, just, uh, I guess final word is... Um, it goes to that idea of liberation, you know, that um, we we all want to be happy, right? We want to be free. Um, and the my favorite quote is from Lila Watson. She's, I think, a New Zealand uh, artist, community activist. And she says, um, if you're here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you're here because your liberation is bound up in mind, then... Let's work together. And I think of that, you know, um, in the different things that I am involved with. I, it's all about liberation, but it's it's not like me helping others. It's we're in this together. You know, we're we're learning, we're unpacking, we're seeing ourselves in one another, and um, and healing as a result of it. So thanks. It's been a pleasure. Um, thank you. Thank you. That was a per- beautiful way to to end our um, our show. And this has been scan number three three seven nine three thousand three hundred seventy nine. Um, and on behalf of NASCA, um, Dr. Rome, I think wish to thank you and to all of you out there listening. Uh, the archive will be available in about thirty minutes. So thank you and good night. 
Radio. 